welcome to Nashville, CA. This is your double feature, double weekly podcast hosted by one guy who lives in Nashville and another guy who lives in California. I am the CA part of the show. My name is Sean, and with me, as always, is my co-host Josh. Hey, buddy, what's going on? Not a whole lot. I've I'm over here. It's the rare uh, evening recording for us, so it's a little bit looser. I've got my podcast candle glowing and just flickering beside me. Making it nice and cozy in here. Do you have open flame next to you? I feel like that's dangerous. Well, I mean, it's it's on my record shelf. Is it even possible for a wildfire to happen in Tennessee with how goddamn humid it is in that state? <laughs> no, if you try to light a fire outside, it literally stops. And on that note, we have another Tennessee guest joining us today. It's our old friend Austin, who came on our show previously to talk about uh, Point Blank and Out of Sight. Hey, Austin, how are you? Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm doing all right. Good. It's wonderful to have you back on. It's been a while, so I'm very excited to talk to you again. You were our... You have the honor of being our first guest when, uh, honestly, I feel like the show was still pretty clunky back then, (laughs) so uh, I'm excited to have you back on in this this new this new futuristic and highly efficient <laughs> Nashville CA where we have not hit the 4 hour mark in a long time well uh i hope i'm not the last guest after today <laughs> <laughs> i i might end the show after today. if if today's episode is really really good then i might just want to end it on a high note and call it after this pull a costanza <laughs> mhm <laughs> that's it for me folks and then i do the the blackjack dealer clap and then you show both your hands and then out of there uh-huh. <laughs> there there are forest fires in tennessee because we had that real bad gatlinburg fire like five years ago like burned down a whole town pretty much you remember that How? josh your state is made of water <laughs> <laughs> it was in like november or something yeah. so it was it was uh, one of the colder months, at least. Th- things get kind of crispy around here uh, in the in the fall months. I flew from Nashville to Reno, and stepping out of the plane, out of the airplane terminal airport in Reno, and feeling all of that humidity that had been soaking into my bones for the the, the whole trip, just immediately get sucked out of me by the dried Reno air. It was amazing. Going anywhere that has like moderate humidity feels like a major improvement. <laughs> uh, you've been watching anything good? Is there anything else interesting uh, going on? So I've kind of been slacking on movies, to be honest. But my uh, latest obsession, I guess you could say, is on Netflix. Uh, they're original series formula one drive to survive it's not a movie but it's a i I don't you can call it a documentary series it's a little exaggerated but (laughs) it's a real cool kind of entry point into the sport of formula one and that that's been i've been binging that lately and that's been a lot of fun and i I really seem to have taken to the sport faster and like you're just like (laughs) diving so hard head first into it. it i feel like it took me six months 
to get where you've gotten to in the past, I don't know, four weeks since it's you got been about it. a it's, month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're already talking about stuff that I don't even know what's you're going on. And you're just, I, I love it. You have a passion for it already. So I'm, I have a pretty obsessive personality about like hobbies. So I hope it doesn't just like flame out, but I've been enjoying it so far. Um, yeah. That's how I am with my hobbies. I just, as I, I get really fucking passionate and into a hobby until I'm able to do a thing well enough. And then once I can do something well enough, I lose interest and move on. As, as like far as anti whiplash. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very much not a uh, whiplash guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen Prey or, yeah, Prey yet. Um, I've heard mostly good things, I feel like. Mm-hmm. It's good. It just relies on CGI too much. Other than that, it's good, though. Yeah, that that's the one detractor I've heard, so I, I think I'll probably like it. I just need to find time to press play. Well, one movie that you really like I've seen is uh, both of these, actually. So we're talking about The French Connection, directed by uh, William Friedkin. And we're also going to be talking about Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue. Rogue? Mm-hmm. Rogue. Yeah, Rogue. Rogue. And uh, let's just cut to it. This, these movies are from uh, 71 and 73, which means I am extremely out of my element on this episode. <laughs> I've never seen either of these movies. I did not grow up on 70s movies at all. And um, so... This was this was a fun experiment for me, and it was really these both are right classic movies that, as a film buff, I feel like I should see and I needed to see, and I'm glad that I did. Um, but I I just find it interesting having like I wonder how my life would have been different had I grown up with parents that watched more '70s movies. They they rented a lot of like contemporary stuff in the '80s, and I mean and tons of stuff in the 90s. But like I, I feel like the only 70s movie that I really recall loving as a kid was Jaws. There's nothing wrong with another, loving Jaws. Another Roy Scheider. Mm-hmm. I wanted more Roy Scheider in, in uh, The French Connection. We'll get to that. But what order do you think we should discuss these movies? Uh, doesn't matter to me, because, I, I mean, I only picked Don't Look Now, but I might as well have picked both. Cause <laughs> That's what I, I was love, thinking. I do love both of these movies. That's, Josh, what order do you think we should go? And you've seen both of these before. So, my thought had been, like, end with the, the downer ending, and then move into the happier one. <laughs> Which one? Wait, is this, is, this is this is another Black Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. Josh thinks one of these movies is uplifting, and then I end up just like devastated in tears at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, as far uh, as endings go, it's kind of a bleak night we've got ahead of us. <laughs> the uh, oh yeah, we'll we'll get there. But Popeye Doyle is he's a real whiplash. I I feel like that obsessive drive is just uh I think we should leave that for the end so we have like some momentum. I agree. I think don't look now is 
slowly builds up that momentum and then we carry that into French Connection, which is a little bit more. I mean, the, you know, it's fun. I really liked this pairing due to the fact that these were both very foot chase, foot chasey movies. And um, also both like heavily reliant on the location. And Josh, I think that was when I asked you about like movies that have like a city or a location as a character. Mm -hmm. I watched don't look now first. And that's what I really keyed in on was the town of the city of Venice and how much of a huge role that plays. And so I asked you and we talked and we figured out French connection. However, I thought this movie took place in Paris and it, <laughs> it starts in Paris and then it never goes back there. I, 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 I was confused. Uh, so wait, are we, are we doing French? Cause you're starting with French now, talk. I, I I'm just <laughs> off topic. We're okay. starting with don't look now. Okay. Because I've got some, some deeper insight. Uh, so some more personal insights into the world of Josh via the French connection and we'll get there. But that was a good segue to it. We'll get there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, don't look now stars Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. And it's, uh, fucking, it's a classic horror movie about a couple that loses a child. And then the, the guy who's kind of haunted by it, you know, in almost a physical manifestation. And, um, it's always whenever you see like the AFI top 100 horror list or VH1 horror moments, these, this movie's always on those lists. And so I, I, that's all I knew about this movie was essentially I knew the ending. So it kind of <laughs> sucked that I watched those VH1 top 50 scariest moments in movies before because it spoiled a ton of the classics for me, but it got me into the genre. But Austin, you chose this one. So what's your history with this? When did you first see this? And what what draws you to this movie? I probably saw it about six or seven years ago. Probably around the time I like really started buying up Blu-rays. And uh, it, it's in the Criterion Collection, which was probably my gateway into buying and watching movies. Um, and I think at the time I was just like, what horror movies are in the criterion collection? And this, they have a handful. I mean, they don't have a ton, but, uh, what they have is pretty good. And this is one of them. And it, um, at the time I, I, I didn't really grow up watching movies. It's been kind of in the last 10 years that I've really, um, tried to like educate myself and try to catch up on everything I haven't seen. Um, so this, this viewing was a little more informed, but I, I really noticed a lot of like Giallo influence and a lot of that Italian filmmaking where it, it set in Venice. So you get a lot, it kind of just looks like a lot of those movies anyway, but, um, it, I think I, I really love uh, Gialli and um, other Italian genre movies. So I think subconsciously when I first saw it, it kind of, that kind of sunk in without me even realizing it. And then since then I've seen a lot of 
a lot more of those movies and it really hit home how um familiar it was in some way but it, it's got a it's nick rogue he's is he english i'm thinking so yeah or yes he was okay yeah it's kind of got like a more refined british it's not it's not nearly as trashy as a, a lot of italian movies but still kind of have like uh, as we as we get to the ending it still kind of has that sensational ending that a lot of those movies have um but uh yeah it's just a just stuck out to me as a beautiful movie and it uh, it's kind of stuck with me and Donald Sutherland's incredible at 100% on that one that's uh, his performance overall, I think, is it's such a uh, what do you want to say, like signpost or precursor for me. The whole movie is, but his performance especially is like a precursor to the Ari Aster films. Uh, like the style is is like you said that more European, but the fact that we're gonna make a whole movie that is just it's a horror movie saturated in grief. And just these very adult feelings, and we're just going to make you sit with them for 90 minutes or however long it is. Uh, It's just really, I think, it feels uh, kind of ahead of its time in that way for me. Donald Sutherland's one of those actors that's been in, like, countless movies, but I feel like I've often seen him, especially later on, in smaller roles or even often cameos. And so he's he's kind of a hard actor for me to place as far as like favorite Sutherland performances. He's also in um was this before or after um inv- is it Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Mm-hmm. Is his other classic horror movie. He uh, makes uh he makes wonderful horror faces. Oh, yeah, and uh, sounds, I would say, too. Yeah, I mean, as we get into this movie here, when this guy's... So, I mean, at, I mean, right off the bat here, I didn't catch it on the first viewing. I, it was kind of more going over the movie again, how when this guy is out in his house and they, his kids are playing, he seems to have some kind of sensory extra sixth sense about him because he like it, you know when his kids are out playing he looks up and it doesn't seem like there's anything that notifies him that like anything happened outside did you pick up on that yeah he's got that um what's he he's looking at a, a picture and the is it like an ink blot that spreads across it it looks like blood mm-hmm. yeah and that happens again and again in this movie. Yeah, it's a pretty eerie um, effect. But it's kind of kind of the whole thing is he he kind of feels something going on, but doesn't really know or do anything about it. That's that whole thing is built on his performance and the edit, like. He makes it look believable, and then the edit does does the work of letting us know what's happening. Uh, and I wanted to call out the editor, Graham Clifford, 
uh, who he also directed several things, but I thought it was fascinating uh, that this dude also edited MASH, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye. Those are all Altman films. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he edited uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> so uh, this this is probably the editor whose work I have seen the most <laughs> because of my dozens of uh, screenings of Rocky Horror. Oh, that would be a fun exercise. What editor have I seen the most movies by? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an impressive resume. Oh, yeah. And that's uh, leaving out his directorial films. He directed Francis. I don't know. Austin, have you ever seen Francis? I'm not sure I know what that is. The um, It's a early 80s film with Jessica, Jessica Lange um, as Francis Farmer the actress from uh, uh, the 30s. And doesn't Nirvana have a song about Francis Farmer will have her revenge or whatever? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, but he also directed Gleaming the Cube, which which was oh, a wow. favorite of mine when I was growing up. That's the skateboard movie? Yes, yes. That's a classic 80s movie that I've never seen. Yeah, yeah like I haven't seen that one. Gleaming either. the Cube and Rad, because those are two oh, classics I've Rad, never seen. Rad is awesome. <laughs> uh, but we would also need to do a triple feature, because then I would want to talk about Airborne. And then you got to throw Thrashing in, too. What about Brink? Quite, qu- no, get out of here, with Brink. <laughs> <laughs> we, we cut it at four movies. Damn it. Um, but to get, to, to get back to the edit, yeah, this scene here, it's. It's pretty amazing when he dives into the water and pulls her out, and there's that slow-mo shot as he's, like, rising out of the water with her, and that yell, that's that slow-mo yell, it's really haunting. And then shortly after this, when his wife comes out, and we hear her scream, and it transitions from her scream into the sound of a drill, it's really, really affecting and unsettling. Made me wonder how long the little girl was underwater. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like it, the the actress. You know, I mean. So what do you? Oh, the actress. So I was just this whole scene. So it seems like what's implied is that her her brother's riding a bike and her ball falls into the pond, and she goes after the ball and drowns essentially. Yeah, I I guess so. The blood kind of makes you think there's a little more to it, but I think she drowns. It's so, it's weird though, because she's like throwing the ball, it looks like she's throwing it into the pond, and the brother's distracted because he ran over a random mirror that was in their field with his, <laughs> with his bike, and he's like checking the tires. Uh, I, except for the child death, this place looks amazing. I I want to go to there and just stay for a week in that house. It looks like just like men. The that was the my thought of it. That was my yeah. thought. So we'll we'll talk more about that in about a month. <laughs> uh, did you guys notice the the army man toy she's playing with? Like the weird British nope. soldier with the he's wearing a gas mask. 
and gas masks are cool. And she's subverting like, gender roles. <laughs> she pulls the string, and it's like, "Get in line, Captain," and stuff like that. I don't. It's the weirdest little <laughs> toy. I was wondering if in the script, if all those edits are in the script, or if Rogue and Graham uh, like found these found the way to cut it you would have to have shot it to be edited like this i feel like trying to think what other um nicholas rogue movies i've seen i started walk about once and was Mm. enjoying it but it was just too late at night and i didn't finish it and then um it was one of those where it's like i just haven't press play again just for whatever reason but uh he's kind of got it's a little um i don't know how to describe it kind of i guess comparing to altman how his uh very like free-flowing it's a little more disjointed almost Mm -hmm. i guess you kind of get that in this where it's a little more uh see different camera angles and stuff as as things are happening i am fascinated by this the camera which kind of seems to float around but it's never handheld uh and this is too early for steadicam but it always it has like an eerie kind of floating quality and i don't think there's actually a lot of move but within the cuts it's kind of implied that it's doing these uh I'm thinking specifically of the scene, uh, like two scenes later, right? When they're in the little cafe and they, they first meet the psychic and her sister and the way the angles on that just feel like it feels very chilly and almost Fincher esque, right? Like it's disconnected feeling. That performance by that psychic lady who the, the blind woman, Mm mm-hmm. I, I I really like it, and she's pretty unsettling, especially this first scene where she's just like, I've seen your daughter, and she's laughing! She's laughing! <laughs> and just, uh, just like, Ugh, get out of here, you weirdo! <laughs> she's wearing a, a shiny little man. Christine. Oh, but she's laughing, she's laughing, she's happy as can be. There are better ways to relay that message. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, something we did not mention, the story is by Daphne du Maurier, Mm -hmm. who wrote, um, like, The Birds and uh, Rebecca, which you read that with Sean, right? I read a third of Rebecca. <laughs> it was my it was back when I didn't really read yet and it was my first attempt at a book club and uh yeah, I, I fell off pace with that one and didn't get back on, but it, it was it was cool. It was like a classic gothic haunting kind of tale. I'd say that one I think has like a I don't even want to say really a twist. It's some something happens in the last third that makes it worth it. I feel like because oh. it, it's it's kind of weird going through it, but it ends up it ended up paying off for me. 
I would, yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. And I think both the, the Hitchcock version and I even kind of enjoyed the, um, version really, yes, from a couple of years ago. Um, just because I feel like the, the story is so strong, even though they take it kind of further, uh, it, he was closer to the book towards the end of it, uh, than the Hitchcock one does. I somehow never, we, we had planned to watch the movie after we read it. And then I, uh, for some reason never did, I guess we mm. just didn't coordinate a watch along or whatever, but I, I'm curious to see, I'm almost more curious to see the Ben Wheatley one because of how uh negative the reviews were <laughs> it's for one thing it's a beautiful movie it is it's very lush and just um kind of drippingly opulent uh because the way that he sweeps her off her feet and everything towards the beginning is really cool i love dripping opulence <laughs> <laughs> ben wheatley is a real hit or miss director for me um but we we'll talk about kill list one day on this show Josh, I have a question for you as a former taxi driver. Yes. What What do you think about being a taxi driver in Venice? Oh my gosh. So my note repeatedly through this is there's too much water. This It makes me highly <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if Those either... boats are beautiful though. Oh, they're so cool. Uh, especially the ones we get later. But... Um, I can't see large bodies of water without thinking of either uh, how many, how many people, how many bodies are still down there or, uh, like Kraken coming up (laughs) from the deep and devouring me. Yeah. But how long does a body last in the ocean? Oh God. I don't three. No, but like three days. I mean, the fish, (laughs) fish are hungry, man. Fish eat quick. And then your body starts to sink, and then shrimp and little mm-hmm. crabs and stuff, and I don't know what your bones do. I don't know something. I imagine there's something in the ocean that also eats bones. <laughs> there's got to be. That's just uh, uh It's. I think I've talked about it before. The fact that it it hits me on an existential level. Like everyone was kind of ooing and eyeing over the new uh, space pictures from the um, the new telescope. And they're beautiful. They're great. Uh, but I find them like kind of existentially, they blow my hair back. And the ocean does that, but even more. Even like large bodies of water freak me out in a way of like, well, I could just float out there and, and die and no one would ever find my body. Oh, I feel it's in large bodies of water, you swim out in a lake off a boat or. God forbid you're deep in the ocean and you jump off the boat and swim around a la open water two or open water. There's a lot of open ocean swimming in those movies. <laughs> open water two. <laughs> open water two is a bunch of people go out on a sailboat and they all jump off the sailboat, but nobody lowers the ladder over the edge and there's no way to get back on board. That's the whole movie. But I feel that fear of the void. Mm-hmm. And then when I play, uh, the video game Outer Wilds, you often, it, it, it's a very fun game, but you also often end up getting like tossed into the deep space or sucked into a black hole. And there's 
that game filled me with an existential dread the first time I played it that was hard to define. But when my astronaut character ended up floating just out in deep space, I felt like I might fall into my computer screen. <laughs> the so driving... But I don't feel that in this movie with with just all the rivers and everything, the canals. I don't oh. I don't feel any kind of water fear based on this. Oh yeah, there's I think I, I just much. I just find it preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rid- it's a ridiculous uh system for a city to be built on. I mean, so, how long do you think Venice is going to be around honestly? It it can't be around that much longer, right? So I I've always heard not to visit Venice, but it looked beautiful in this movie. There's almost zero foliage in the city though. Maybe it's different now. But I was watching this movie, and I was, like, starved for a tree, a bush, even just houseplants. Like, just, it, it's a very dead, lifeless movie in that regard. That's, it, it's the opposite, I feel like, of a lot of the, the cozy 70s movies. For me, the height of that 70s coziness is the uh, Carol King tapestry album cover. And there's something about like she's sitting next to a window. There's a quilt. Uh, there's, a, I think there's a cat next to her. It feels like just so homey and safe. And this movie feels all just the opposite of that. Like it's cold and distant. Although I do love, um, especially his outfits in it. Like that wool coat is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. Later in the movie, um, she, I, I want to get these character names in. Um, they are John and Laura. Later on in the movie, Laura is wearing, um, I believe it's called Houndstooth, the pattern. Mm-hmm. It's that white and black checker. And that that pattern fascinates me. For one, like I, I, I would love to look up a little bit of the history of it, but also... I had the baggiest chef pants in the world that were <laughs> that exact houndstooth pattern. And I loved those pants. They were like MC Hammer pants. And I'd wear them to work, <laughs> and they were wonderful. Yeah, that the outfits are pretty incredible in this. I wonder... I didn't look up the, the costumer or anything. Oh, also the music is by Pino DiNaggio. Oh, yeah, I had that in my notes. Okay. That totally makes sense. Like of body who's double, Pino DiNaggio. body double for one. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the body double score. It's amazing. Telescope is an all timer. Um, he did a lot of those early De Palma. He did. He did Carrie. Um, he did Dress to Kill. I've got some of his stuff on vinyl too. Uh, and then I think he did several of the. Uh, like Gialli or Eurocrime uh, type things as well, which is right up our alley there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're going to go right up both these actors' alley now as we Ooh. get into this very nude <laughs> sex scene. I mean, it's it starts off and it's just Sutherland getting nude. And then I'm like, all right, this is just whatever. He wants to show his butt. 
little Sutherland butt. But then he goes into his office, and he just sits down nude at his desk, and he's just going to start <laughs> doing work in there. And then he goes from his office into his bedroom, and now it's nighttime. He went into his office, it was daytime, so this man has apparently been nude for like seven hours. And then this sex scene. Holy cow! Are we sure this was simulated? So yeah, that's the rumor is that it wasn't. It didn't look it. I don't, I'm, I'm inclined to think it is simulated. I don't know. It's it is intense. It is long, and it is beautifully edited. That's uh, yeah. It's it's like showing you the uh, the present and the future at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's doing? Yeah, I like the cross cutting it with them going out on a date later on and it but it, this scene just keeps going and it's it, it's really accurate's a weird word to say but it, it has a feeling of actual like passion and touch especially for these people who is this their first time having sex since everything with their child went down it feels that way with the passion and the reconnection that happens and there's just there's so much touching and body touching and just it it you really feel like the reconnection of these two people and it I don't know that's why I wonder if it's not simulated because this just this feels like such a real sex scene compared to Hollywood sex that's I really wonder if it is it has a lot to do with the intimacy of it rather than just actually what we're seeing you know it's um, you know in in Psycho you never see the knife actually go into her flesh and much much like you don't see Donald (laughs) Sutherland's penis actually (laughs) Uh, but it really is like I think because it feels so familiar and it doesn't look like they're rolling around but in a very intimate way not like a a Hollywood production with like billowing curtains and all that kind of stuff like it doesn't I'm picturing the Top Gun sex scene in my mind as the comparison to like a Hollywood version versus this and the yeah, you get the billowing curtains and the silhouette and the blue lighting, and this just feels raw mm-hmm. and real and raw dog. <laughs> it was a little weird that "Take My Breath Away" was playing in the background, <laughs> <laughs> especially since that song wouldn't come out for another six years. <laughs> uh, back back to him sitting in the chair. Was that when the maid walked in and he yeah. <laughs> spins around <laughs> cupping his dick? <laughs> that cracked yeah. me up. <laughs> That's uh, two notes from me. One, uh, this was totally stolen for the last time Austin was on the show by Steven Soderbergh for Out of Sight. Uh, the sex scene in that, which is much more Hollywood and, and glamorous, um, but he intercuts with their their date uh, and the sex scene, and then it's like got a, a cold stop when he wakes up later. 
uh, or when they start discussing uh, what he does later. Uh, but the other thing is, this is too much nudity for me. Like, not in a movie. Like, in a, I'm I'm okay with it. But for me as a human being, the idea of sitting on a chair nude, I could I could never do that. Yeah, it, it, too vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sean's I have done. <laughs> I have done, but just briefly living alone, just like, eh, what if I just didn't put clothes on getting out of bed? And uh, it, it eventually just gets weird. And then, yeah, the idea of like furniture, nude butt on furniture, I, it, it's not great. I don't like it. Wait, uh, I had this conversation with Elizabeth earlier today. Uh, because I got out of the shower and I was like, I could just take a nap right now, just fully nude. And she just started laughing. She's like, there's no way in hell that you could. And I was like, no, I couldn't. I can't even sleep nude in my own bed, in my house. It It is just a non-starter for me. Do you I, uh, think when all the kids move out, you'll be able to? No. <laughs> it's not related. Okay. Because I thought maybe it's just related to the fact that like, you never know when the kindergartner is going to wander in or whatever right i i'm a nude sleeper for sure especially Um, we talked about it with dustin on our episode mm -hmm. about whatever the fog and i don't remember what we talked about borderlands and something else with dustin but uh i'm in the nude nude sleeper camp yeah i'm afraid of testicular torsion (laughs) guys your balls your balls are gonna get all twisted up in your boxers and then you're gonna you're gonna get twisted. Okay. And someone's gonna have to untwist you, and it, it, I don't want to. I don't want it. I, I've got I to un, untwist your your preconceived notions here. First of all, <laughs> I sleep in boxer briefs, so there there's some there's some support going on there. My boys aren't just flying about willy nilly. Uh, <laughs> secondly, what if there's a house fire? You're gonna run out nude? No. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, let the neighbors see it. I I will admit to uh I I I pee in my backyard a lot and there's definitely <laughs> been some times where I we when I used to smoke cigarettes it'd be like 11:30, 12 o'clock at night and I'd just be like no one's out here. I'm just going to pee in my front yard right now. And uh so I, I you know if the if the neighbors want to see what they want to see, that's their prerogative. That's not mine. <laughs> Also, if anybody was to ever try to um, break into my house, I would think it'd be an intimidation factor to see a man with a baseball bat completely nude <laughs> charge at him. That's, that is the one advantage that I see, is being able to put somebody off their breaking and entering game. I'm also blind without my contacts, so I'll be pretty useless <laughs> in either situation until I get glasses on. Uh. That's funny. I was just, I'm reading uh, the Dark Tower books, and when you first meet Eddie, uh, he, uh, I guess it's a few chapters in, uh, but he has a gunfight naked after he learns of his brother's death. Like, he just rushes out of this bathroom and starts shooting everybody, just nude. And I just think of bullet casings flying out of guns and landing on his naked skin, and it, I can't. (laughs) So as the movie moves forward here, we got John who's restoring this church 
and his wife starts hanging out with these three ladies, one of which was the blind two ladies. Two ladies. Two ladies. Two ladies. Okay. Um so what did you think of that scene where there's the three of them walking together and it reveals like a demon face looking thing outside the church and then cuts to a demon face in that park that the women are walking by and it felt very ominous and satanic and like with this whole idea of like restoring Christianity to have these images. It's once again, I thought of men of the green man face that's repeatedly used in that. Um, and, but that also links it to, uh, their, I don't remember where the, their British estate is, but there's no, there's no greenery in the rest of this movie. And there's no like earthiness to the rest of it. Even though this isn't like a high tech city, it's all built up and, Everything is, has been there for years, hundreds of years. Uh, there's some really cool scenes of like the water trickling down the stairs, and you see where it's like worn the stairs down in the middle from just constant running. Um, but there's something about those that links to me to like the feral interior nature of somebody that. Uh, they are not letting out, you know, they're not admitting their grief. The first time the, the cut to, uh, them in that cafe, they're both smiling. And yeah, I was, I was going to say that earlier. It like, obviously they're grieving, but it almost doesn't let you in on it. Like if you hadn't seen the beginning, you almost wouldn't know it sometimes. And I think that's, it's really strong though, because of that, like I feel like they're in denial for the majority of the movie. Like, and she's moving in a totally different direction with hanging out with the, uh, with those sisters. Yeah. She seems to be hanging out with them because they give her the idea that maybe somewhere this child is still alive and is still laughing, but, uh, <laughs> Sutherland is clearly in the opposite camp when he goes, my daughter's dead, 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 dead. <laughs> I really think we have to leave Venice. It was a warning. It was Christine. She was trying to warn us. How can I, oh, we must leave John. John, do you hear what I say? It was Christine, our daughter. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the fucking grave. Christine is dead. She is dead. Dead, 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 dead. So what what'd you think of the blind lady saying, yes, 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 and squeezing her boobs? <sighs> when the What's scene, going on there? <laughs> when the scene started, I wrote, oh, you can't beat a good movie seance. And then I wrote, this is not one. <laughs> Austin, what do you think of this? What, what, what's happening there? Uh, that, that threw me for a loop. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I don't know if she's like just tapping into what they were feeling earlier or what, but... Uh... I, I would, would not be, be I would not be hanging with the sisters, I'll tell you that. 
No, you don't think like so this this movie is interesting the idea of like in your state of vulnerability that's often when more culty types can kind of sink their hooks into you people who present you with ideas of eternal life or an end to the pain or so or anything like that and so these this just seems like uh Laura's out is through these women and this is like this is her relief valve but I don't think it's a healthy one. It seems very culty to me. Uh, and once again, it links for me, it linked to hereditary, right? Like that promise of we can hopefully contact your child and find out how they are and what they're doing. Uh, and it just seems like a, a continuous thread between the, the two properties. I need to rewatch Hereditary. I only saw it the one time in the theater. I feel like it's been long enough that it would hit pretty fresh again. Mm-hmm. But it's also not like a, it's a little too effective at times. So I have uh, I have some just like non sequitur notes here that I'm gonna just throw at you. Uh, there's one. Some at one point someone says, "What'd she say? What'd you say?" And I just thought of that Saturday Night Live sketch. Ooh, what you say <laughs> when the sound fucked up? And he got it. And uh, <laughs> after that, so he almost does the Ace Ventura when he comes out of the bathroom and he goes like, Woo! <laughs> "Do not go in there." <laughs> for a couple of minutes if I were you. I've been thrown up for ten years. <laughs> um, phones without a curly wire seem really strange. Seeing a phone attached to just a long straight wa- cable. Mm-hmm. It's just bizarre. And uh, so operators just listen to your phone call back in the day? Is that is that how phone calls used to work? Uh, I think they could if they wanted to, but also they've got other calls to connect. So this operator doesn't seem to. No, like <laughs> theoretically, they have other calls to connect. But that's so weird to think that there's just an operator just sitting there on the line with you, listening to you. I, I, I it, it creeps me out in a way. Yeah, I, you wouldn't be able to. I. You'd probably get over it eventually, but uh, yeah, that'd be, um, a, that'd be a weird thought to have, that somebody's just listening silently. So around this point, their child, Johnny, who's back in, uh, he's in the States, or is he in England? He's in England. He's in England. He gets injured at something called fire practice, and I don't know what fire practice means. I thought maybe he was like in a like a military school or something. Maybe. I don't know. But anyways, Laura decides that uh she's going to leave and John will stay here in Venice. And um Yeah, so I think this takes us to that 
I don't know if this is an iconic scene, but the one where he's doing all the tiling. And Austin, oh. what do you think of this scene where he's up in the scaffolding and the guys are hoisting him up there? Well, I have a fear of heights, so it was pretty <laughs> pretty uh, easy for me to empathize with him and how terrifying that would be. And also just, I mean, the working conditions, there's no... Nothing that resembles OSHA there. Just very <laughs> freewheeling. <laughs> so my question is, when all these guys hoist him up there, it doesn't seem like there's a tie-off point. It feels like they just have to hold him up there as long as he's up there doing the work. But my other question is, where the hell does this 2x4 come from? And is it implied later that with his premonitions, I this this movie at the end we find that like John is has premonitions and a, a bunch of visions leading up to his death that essentially de- foreshadow his own death. And I I was confused about this two by four where it came from. Did he somehow cause this two by four to launch itself from the future? Like what's going on here? It's. I feel like, um, so Heather, this, I think Heather's the sister who's the psychic, um, who is like saying that he's going to come to a bad end. If he stays in Venice, there's all these flashes that are assumed to be, I assume to be his, uh, because they, they're cut just like the earlier scene, uh, at the beginning and his, he's constantly denying that there's any ESP that the sister is a psychic. He thinks it's all a fraud. And to me, it's, it's an extension of his denial of the grief. Like he is not in touch with any of these things, even though he himself is feeling it. And he's the one having those premonitions. Like he doesn't buy into them until closer to the end. Austin, what do you think about his premonitions and is this movie i don't want to say it's a like a butterfly effect but it's some kind of maybe predeterminism i don't know which philosophy which philosophical phenomena this would fall under yeah i don't i don't know the um he's obviously given a lot of or chances or opportunities to be like, all right, I'm getting the fuck out of Venice. Um, but you kind of get the idea that he's going to stay regardless. Um, and obviously you can't be convinced by the sisters cause he just can't buy into it. Um, so it, to me, it almost feels like it's going to happen one way or the other. Um, just because he he won't give in to whatever feelings he's having, I hadn't considered until now. Maybe he has like a death drive, though. Maybe there is part of him that is buying into it and like fatalistic or whatever. Yeah, uh, but also like the uh, idea that he's got these these things going on 
uh, feels very much like a Final Destination uh, or some of the scenes in the Omen movies with like kind of the the long setups of how someone's going to die. Like there keep being uh, this one especially, but there keeps keep there is repeatedly <laughs> uh, the shots of like shit that could happen to him, things that could go wrong. Uh, and it's just like, there's so many ways that he could buy it. And he just refuses to listen just over and over again. Or just the fact that his, his kid is potentially very hurt or mm-hmm. sick or whatever it is. <laughs> just now nah, I'll, I'll stay here. Yeah. He's got like, uh, he's so closed off, right? Like it's just. The the earlier scene, when he comes out of that bathroom, he just threw up. He said he hasn't thrown up in 10 years. Like, first of all, I know I'm, I'm a queasy dude. I throw up way more often than that. But also, I, I think it speaks to him not being in touch with himself. This movie would go really well with... Uh, we were talking earlier in the Discord about The Vanishing, the Dutch movie. Mm-hmm. Which is... And also... Um, Oh, fuck, I was just thinking about it. Um, but just movies where characters refuse to let go of something, and then it ends up being their downfall. And that's a that's a good example of it, where a character just keeps getting the warning signs, keep getting the message to just leave it alone, leave it be, let it go, and then their refusal to do so is like a self-fulfilling prophecy of their own demise. The uh, also, when he falls off that rickety lift and he's holding on that rope, there's no way he can hold on that rope for that long. I'm sorry. Like, that's fucking difficult to do. I bring this up <laughs> over and over again, but it is. Uh, it reminds me of the Iger sanction. Yes, exactly. You're, you're, uh, you're yeah, not no, hanging you, there. I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to a rope. I don't have grip strength like that to hold on to a rope. If maybe if I got my legs nice and tangled mm-hmm. in the rope itself and got some knots going around my calves, then maybe I could do this. But yeah, this this is a very wild scene with him dangling there, and and then how they get a stick out. <laughs> I love the idea of getting a stick out, and they just start poking him with the stick. <laughs> I mean, they're pushing him, but initially it just looks like like let's just like let's just poke him and see what happens. <laughs> Uh, when they go, or when Laura goes to visit, um, their child, uh, he's got a goose egg on his head from where he got hit, and it looks like a fucking cartoon. Like, (laughs) this, this thing is comically large, and I worry about this child's safety. Uh, I mean, not without the movie, but within the movie, uh, I, I feel bad for this kid. There is a viral internet image that went around, I don't know, like 15 years ago of a boxer who got headbutted and his whole forehead over his eyebrow just swelled with blood. And it just it just was like this big blob off his forehead that was just hanging there. It just looked so gross and disgusting. (laughs) So uh, this is where like right after his um uh, his 
problem with the scaffolding is when he sees his wife in the canal on the funeral barge, which is beautiful. Uh, like I would want one of those boats. If, if I ever do die, I either want a Viking funeral or then you can send me to Venice and put me on one of these like gold fluted boats and like, just put, you know, put her my body around town. What if we just set one of those gold fluted Venice boats on fire with you in it? Hell yes. Hell yes. Let's do that. But then you would be a body at the bottom of the canals, which are the things that scare you. Oh, I don't mind if I am the body. Like after I'm dead. I just don't want to touch really? the water that other bodies are touching. <laughs> what, if, what if you're the body in the water after being the body in the water while you're alive? Okay, now I'm having existential dread just <laughs> sitting in my chair in my office. <laughs> That's too upsetting, Austin. I don't like that. <laughs> uh, but Austin, what did you, how did you feel about seeing that scene when he sees her? Do you think that it's, is this a real thing that he's seeing? Is it another vision that he's having? I, I don't really know it. Um, I mean, I, I guess you have to say it's a vision, but, uh, I don't know. It's it, kind of a weird thing to untangle. I mean, as, as we see, it's his, as we end up seeing, it's his own funeral barge or whatever you would call that. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it's I guess it would be like a premonition of his of his future, and he still. But it, I mean, he he sees it as his wife still hasn't left Venice for some reason, hasn't told him, and so he just kind of takes it at literal like literal face value and ignores why that would be a weird thing to see. Um. Yeah, it's kind of constantly playing with your, constantly playing with you about what you're, what you're seeing and, um, how to think about what you're seeing and what it actually is. Uh, like when he finds a baby toy in the canal, and that's that's just a very creepy little moment. And there's so many pigeons surrounding him after that. Is it, uh, when when does it say that there's also a serial killer? Okay. <laughs> Good question, because I didn't really pick up on that subplot. It's, I it think, seemed like it was later than I remembered. Yes, I thought it ran through the whole movie. And I thought maybe I just didn't notice the policeman or one of his uh, uh, Italian contacts there talking about it, but I clocked it. They pull that body out of the river um, at an hour and seven minutes in. It's only like an hour 50 or yes, I think. Oh, by the way, that body looked very real. Yeah, that's upsetting. <laughs> oh. oh, no. <laughs> Dog emergency. Oh, I hope not. 
I always feel bad for his dog emergency. Speaking of, my dog's outside barking like an idiot right now. <laughs> I heard a cat earlier, but she got... Sorry, I heard the sounds of a potential dog accident happening. I, I When I hear that noise, I have to just get up and go. Mm-hmm. You, you listen to your uh, sixth sense. Did, did you have a premonition about it? No, I just heard his feet and, uh, you know, he, he's an old dog. He doesn't get, a, get around very well on the hardwood floor. And uh, so if I hear him walking around near the back door, I know, I know he needs to go out. So, something we didn't mention. I have since met both of y'all since we last recorded. Yes. Oh, yeah. Josh I think twice, about that. I think. It's been twice, right? Yeah, we went to Licorice Pizza and then to see Bully. Bully. Yeah, that's right. I don't remember the other band on the ticket, but I enjoyed both of them. Oh, from what I, what I saw of the first one. Oh, yeah. You, uh, you went in the wrong... Uh, it's a multi-venue venue and you yes. went in the... One of the other spaces. There's multi-venue venues. Not it's like anymore. one building with. Is it gone now? Uh, I can't remember who did the last show, but it was advertised on Instagram as like the end of an era. Man, that sucks. I liked Mercy Lounge a lot. Mm-hmm. Then Austin, you and I went out to. Um, Bodega Bay. That's right. We went and, and saw... Checked the, out some film locations. We saw The uh, the Birds, which is um, relevant to our conversation today. Oh, yeah. It all, it all comes back to... Um, oh, what's her name? Daphne, Daphne. DeMarie. I was like, Rebecca DeMarie. <laughs> nope, that's not right. <laughs> All right, I'll be right back. I gotta go oh. get dogs back inside now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about Lord of the Rings, Sean? Uh, I was a big fan of them. I saw them all in theater back when they first released. And I I was going to rewatch the the whole trilogy one day during quarantine. And I got about 90 seconds into the intro of just the woman talking mm-hmm. and telling the history of the ring. I was like, nope, nope, nope. This is too much for me. I can't, I can't commit to this today. <laughs> this is too, this is just like too thick. This is too dense for me to just dive into. And uh-huh. so that was the end of it. And then um, the Hobbit movies held zero interest for me. And I haven't seen anything. Like I, I think I saw a teaser for the new show, but that's not. I'll probably watch it. I don't know, man. And like the new Game of Thrones show, I people are excited about it. I think it looks like shit. I think the wigs look preposterous. Uh, that show lost like all credibility or like confidence that I had in it. So I'm very, very skeptical of it now. And it's starring, or it has Patty Considine in it, so I should love it, but I'm still skeptical. I I wasn't a Game of Thrones guy either. Well, I loved the show, and that's why I'm so upset about it, because I was like a mega fan who rewatched the seasons before the next season would start, 
just to like really dive deep in the lore and make sure I had everything straight in my head. And then those last seasons hit and it was just it was just like a such like a waste of time. Uh Austin, are are you like me? Like are you fantasy averse? I would say yes. Okay. It, uh, that doesn't surprise me since you're an engineer. I feel like engineers don't have time for make believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any exceptions. I watched Conan the Barbarian for the first time last week, and it was I I wasn't as tuned in as I would want to be, but it reminded me a lot of of. Fulci's Conquest. You may have seen that, Josh. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure Fulci was just doing his version of Conan. But I, I'd seen that recently, which is probably not a good movie, but it's got a Claudio Simonetti soundtrack, so it's, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> um, But Conan was pretty cool. Uh, It's very it it was more um it had more artistry in the filmmaking than i expected yeah typically i'm i'm not um not too big into fantasy and it's, even even sci-fi i'm not i'm not huge into mm-hmm. i'm kind of specific that's I've been trying to get into fantasy because I've got a lot of friends who they really seem to enjoy it. Also, I'm running a freaking D&D game, so I guess maybe I've crossed the threshold and I didn't realize it. Yeah, that that gives you some points in the pro fantasy yes. column, I think. So where were we in this movie? He's season Well, there's a as we oh, get back f- into it, there's a there's a great Carl Pilkington thought here, which is men become distinct as they age, women converge and look the same. Oof. That's just in an that's an inane Carl Pilkington thought if I've ever heard of one. Yeah. And after this is when he makes the phone call and he talks to his wife, who actually is in England. And I love that he doesn't believe her. <laughs> like, it's just it's very funny to me to think that he's talking to her and yet he still doubts that somehow it's her or you know he he's he's questioning everything now and doesn't the the connection that they made have made during the sex scene at the start of this movie or in the third of it that connection seems to have dissolved by the time that we get to the end of this again that's I absolutely think so. I th- I feel like the conversation they're having is only they're only sideways talking to each other, right? Like she's talking at cross purposes to what he's saying and she's like they're each on their own track and not really connecting at all. As far as the uh I guess like the deeper meanings of the story it makes me wonder why she gets why she is able to leave venice as opposed to him 
I guess I, I don't know if it has to do with her kind of willingness to listen or what, but that was just kind of a thought I had. Could also just be the idea of 70s dad being like, you're the woman, you go deal with the kid, I have work to do. It always strikes me like as portentous that it happens in Venice because there's that story, Death in Venice. And it's just like, if you're going to get got, that's where it's going to happen. Well, and the blind lady does get got because... So John calls the police here. I'm very confused at why these police would arrest this woman based on no evidence of any kind. Mm-hmm. Just one man slowly losing his mind. And do you, can you describe anybody, anybody in the world from memory well enough that someone else could draw that person and then the police could ostensibly find that person or that person would turn out to look exactly like the, the person you had described? That does not seem possible to me. It doesn't seem real. I'll do you one better. I'm looking at your face right now. <laughs> and if I had a stenographer next to me, I could not describe your face to him because I don't know what shape your nose is. Uh-huh. I don't know. I can't tell what, like, how to describe your cheekbones to someone. Or it, it, Also, I have no idea what color either of your eyes are, and I've spent multiple days with both of you. <laughs> it's part of my face blindness. Like, eye color just does not stick in my head. Josh has the distinct beard, but I feel like the moment we leave this video chat, I would be like, I don't remember what color it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very gray. Yeah, it's incredibly gray. I now. did see I did see pictures of young Josh without a beard. And uh he's a funny looking little kid. <laughs> <laughs> so uh John decides after he talks to his wife to go get the lady out of jail. And this is Man, this woman, when she freaks out, her friend jams her hand in her mouth, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very weird. And then the line, please let him not go. Fetch him. Let him not go. The way that's phrased was so bizarre that it really stuck with me. Yeah, it's uh, he's walking around Venice doomed, looking like a freaking Doctor Who. Uh, This woman is yelling, (laughs) let him not go, which is the most Baroque way to say that. Like, you're using too many words. Just say, go get him. (laughs) Like, he's don't don't go. Yes. Don't let him go. But yeah, it's like a let him not go is like Yoda style or something. It's like a double negative, but a like a positive negative. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this is when, what, Laura shows back up at the sister's place, and then she starts chasing John. John starts chasing the red-jacketed person, right? Which is, uh, his, their daughter had a very red jacket when she died, right? Yes. That, which... was, that was the connection. The the weird thing to me, in my memory, it was the same red jacket. Uh, the same type of red jacket, but it's not. 
Hers was oh, like it's a, like a it's like a shiny one. Right? Yes, hers the daughter's was a slicker, and this one that he sees is like a woolen coat. Jen and I we watched this movie together. We think she looks like one of the the brood mm-hmm. children yeah. from the Cronenberg movie. She's in, she even has that bl- uh, blonde hair. Ugh. Uh, um, so I, I have a note that I, I don't remember. I saw, I watched this movie and then Josh and I watched two other movies and recorded a whole nother episode. And then I watched the French connection. So this movie is a little, a little foggy, almost like Donald Sutherland's feet that go through the fog in this movie at the end. But, uh, <laughs> I just have a note that the wife runs through the street and runs by a dog. That is a good dog. I don't remember what that. <laughs> Uh, apparently there's a good dog at the end of this movie and I don't remember it, but I wrote it in my notes. She does a good job of sort of tracking him because there's no way, I mean the what the cinematography shows you is that it's just like a complete maze of alleyways and doesn't seem like there's any actual streets. It's just, just Yeah, like, I loved just I like loved the tension the tension of like descending into a labyrinth and like it starts to become mystical and foreboding with the fog that sweeps over the feet and everything. And it just, it it feels like a spiral down Alice in Wonderland fairy tale nightmare. And then it climaxes with this ending when this person turns around and it's not his daughter. It's a, I think I think the credits little, say dwarf, yes. little person, serial killer. I don't know. I it, I knew this ending was coming based on those VH1 shows, but when this ending hit, my mouth was still just hanging open because it's a real what the fuck ending. This is very much the Italian giallo slipping through. Just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, what the fuck's going on? Um, Austin, only, what'd you think of the cleaver hit on his neck? It's brutal. It, uh, does it does it show blood? I can't remember. Yes. The yeah, but the first cut. You know how when you cut yourself? Oh yeah, it's like that sometimes dope. like one or two seconds where there is no blood. That's that's almost how this effect looked, and it 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 was even more dis- unsettling for me because of that because of that delay before the blood flows ignore my cat taking a dump I, I can't I, that's all I'm looking at right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's uh, it's a gnarly scene and also leading up to that he goes he goes through that gate and locks it like what are you doing dude yeah, would you even, would you chase the apparition or what you thought was the apparition of a deceased loved one? No. Well, I don't even check, th- I don't even check my kitchen for noises. <laughs> even once, once he's in earshot of her, you know, he's chasing her and he's calling his daughter's name. And the fact that this person continues to run away should be a sign that it's not your daughter because they're not responding in any way to your call. Uh, in this circular editing at the end, the it, it reminded me of, like, the limey. Mm-hmm. As far as 
weird timeline editing. And this is where you get the montage. And this is where it really hammers home the idea of premonition and foreshadowing. And, you know, it was things that I did not pick up on as the movie was going. But then there's also the, it's like the photograph that he finds in the church um, comes back. And, you know, all these things and signs that had been shown previously in the movie now appear. And we now see that they were all warnings and images of his incoming death. So similar, similar to that, the ending reminded me of Arrival. Have you seen that? It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, that uh, that that is a sci-fi movie that I love. Oh yeah, I forgot it's a book. I need to read that. Is it? How does I, it compare? I listened to I the short yet. story. I just picked it up. Oh, okay. I listened to that short story, and uh, I think the movie's a lot better. There's ideas there. Like the bones are there, and then the movie fleshes everything out, and I just think Amy Adams is so wonderful in Arrival, and that was also the first time that I saw a movie in reclining chairs with brand new sound system in 2014, whenever it came out, and it it just blew my mind. The sound design in that movie is so loud and so intense and yeah i i just love it i i wish denny could uh could hit that level again for me i like his movies but he's you know blade runner 2049 is excellent but it didn't quite hit that it didn't have the emotional hit that arrival had i need i need him to come back for sicario 3 i don't think i saw number two day of the soldado it too is the it's like uh so the did you see the first one yes so i i love the first one and i i liked two but it's definitely more like the action blockbuster but it's also more depressing it's a weird movie but i I was like hell yeah i'm gonna go see sicario too <laughs> why, <laughs> why is there a sequel to this <laughs> The sound design in Sicario 1, some of the gunfire, you know, it it, it gets pretty close, I'd say, to, like, the heat threshold, which is, the heat, I think, will always be the pinnacle of gun sound design in movies, but Sicario gets pretty close. That's, uh, I totally forgot, I watched the other day the behind the scenes for uh, the training of the guys in heat, like of, uh, De Niro and Val Kilmer, uh, and Pacino and everybody. And like, they went through different training camps to learn how to fight differently with their guns, like how to hold themselves differently. And it's, it's up on YouTube so you can find it. It used to be on the DVD extras, but it's a great little making of. So do you guys have any other notes here as we close out? Uh, don't look now. Anything that we skipped over? Any last things that you want to bring up? Um, I wanted to bring up... Oh, we see the final uh, thing is his premonition from earlier with his wife standing on the boat, the funeral boat. Uh, except for I called it a hearse boat, which is like a houseboat, but spookier. 
Uh, also the fact that I watched this on Canopy, and I would recommend Canopy to anyone who has access to it. This is a good Canopy heard- movie. Yes. I haven't heard of Canopy. Canopy's, it's Oh, is free. that the library thing? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I actually, I think I do have access to that. I should look into that. It's got a lot of stuff on there. Uh, Austin, did you have any final thoughts about it? I think it, it's just one of those... I, I don't know if I subscribe to that seventies were the best period of movies. I mean, I probably find myself watching those movies more than, mm-hmm. than other decades, but it, it's just got it. For one thing, it just looks gorgeous. Um, the, and then the shooting locations look gorgeous as well. You've got all those old cathedrals and, um, canals and all the, cool boats that uh, that you can see and everybody just looks incredible with like Donald Sutherland's uh, purple coat I mean uh, just incredible looking and it uh, kind of it's like a it's like a uh, giallo that you would maybe with the exception of the sex scene would feel comfortable showing like your parents or something mm-hmm. like I don't know about that one scene but that was that was, <laughs> that was pretty good <laughs> um it, it's kind of it's like a more academic version of that I feel like um which you know I I adore the uh the trashy stuff too so yeah not a uh not a one or the other situation but uh it just kind of, I, I don't know. It's, it, these are the type of movies I like to kind of live in. Um, and just kind of experience the, like the, the setting and the, um, the time. What would you rate this one, Austin? Uh, I, I can't remember what I gave it on letterbox. It was like a four and a half or something four or four and a half. It always feels so arbitrary. It's one that that there's enough going on in it that I would revisit from time to time. Um, so I definitely they, those typically end up going up eventually to five stars anyway. So it could potentially be that for me eventually. Um, yeah, it's just a just very well artistically done, um, and the the. So I read the short story. It's been probably two years now. Um, the story is very similar, but uh, this adds a lot of the like the I guess the visual medium adds a lot of um, I guess ambiguity you would say, and kind of shows a lot of that um, where the the time the time cuts where you're seeing different periods of their life at the same time. Um, it's just a real interesting, visually interesting way to tell the story. I feel like, um, I wanted to, I wanted to comment on the poster. If you look it up on letterbox, it's got the, like, I think original theatrical poster, which is, it's just killer. Like it's simplistic, but it's got 
a photograph and a blood pool that to me like makes it it connects it to the movie in a lot of ways that I feel like a lot of posters don't connect to the style of the movie. Uh, and this one really like it feels like the movie. Uh, also, if you wanted to watch the movie that's all about the serial killer, there's a film called Amsterdam, uh, which Ooh, is I haven't seen that. Oh, I, I've I've heard a lot about it, and yes. I don't know why I haven't seen it. Yeah, that would be once again up your alley. Uh, and without hesitation, I'm giving this four and a half stars. What about you, Sean? I like it. It suffers for me from that '70s pacing of. It's just largely slow with not much going on, minus a few kind of wild big scenes here or there. And I feel that way with a lot of these movies as we get into French Connection. It's kind of the same where there's a couple of really memorable scenes, and then there's a lot of kind of walking and talking filler in between that doesn't quite grab me. But I enjoyed this one, and I'm really glad I saw it. It's a horror classic, so it'd be a three and a half for me. Cool. Well, do you want to take a little break and then come back for the French Connection? The Brooklyn Connection? I know. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Up next, we are going to be talking about the 1971 movie The French Connection, directed by William Friedkin, who's most famous for directing 1994's Blue Chips, starring Nick Nolte and Shaquille O'Neal. And The French Connection stars Gene Hackman, uh, Fernando Rey, who I don't know, and Roy Scheider, who's back on the show again after all that jazz. And uh, Hackman's also a returner from uh, Royal Tenenbaums. So Fernando Rey is the big bad guy. And there's a funny story of how he was cast. I forget what uh, you may know this, Josh. Have you have you heard this story? Um, uh, I don't think so. So Friedkin saw him. Well, thought he saw him in either a play or another. Oh no, no, no! It was uh, Belle de Belle de Jour. Belle de Jour, yeah, yeah. Um, so he saw that movie and saw this saw this actor and he was like, he's, this is him. I want him in the movie. And, um, so his casting guy finds him and then he shows up and it's not that guy. It's, <laughs> it's the guy that's in the movie. <laughs> and and it, so freaking's pissed, but eventually just comes around on it. And I, I think the original guy couldn't speak English at all or something like that. So it's like, it wouldn't have worked out. But I mean, you see the movie, he's, he's great in it. And he, it was like a total fluke. That's hilarious. That's that can't happen that often where they just <laughs> pick the, it's like, Nope, I picked up the wrong guy at the airport and brought him to the casting section. <laughs> so Josh, we also covered, um, to live and die in LA from Friedkin. Mm -hmm. And I remember with Umar, we talked briefly about, um, a sorcerer. And on a serious note, you know, we, we have The Exorcist. So Friedkin really surprises me because his career seems to be a bizarre one. 
where he made so many movies that they're kind of all over the place. He's I mean, one of my favorite directors. Yeah, that's that's his that's his through line uh, is Friedkin, more like freaking awesome director. <laughs> that's even um, his his earlier stuff, his I guess mid period stuff like Jade. Uh, I really like Bug. I really like Killer Joe. Uh, Killer Joe is wild. Yes. Uh, it feels like he just, he's like, everything I've wanted to do in a movie, we're, <laughs> we're just going to go with that. Because that's that script is insane. Um, and then I just picked up The Devil and Father Amorth. Um, but oh. I haven't gotten to watch it yet. Oh. Uh, I saw that at the Chattanooga Film Festival a few okay. years ago. And I'll let you watch it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's short <laughs> mercifully yeah it, well so it's uh, it's kind of interesting and then it's got this really weird tacked on coda that was just like what are you doing man <laughs> holy shit 68 minutes but that is short uh i mean i wanted to see it because of friedkin and um he either co-wrote it or co-directed it with Mark Kermode, the uh, British film critic, who is like the uh, one of the top exorcist uh, film experts that you could have. Uh, I think it's his favorite movie, and so like them kind of going over that same ground seemed really interesting to me. Yeah, you'll you'll have to get back Okay. Once you've seen it. <laughs> okay. So Friedkin, <laughs> he knows how to scare people. And right off this bat, he scared the shit out of me because after we get this, for me, it was a black and white Fox logo that goes to color. Right after that, the score immediately starts with just like a bum, 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 bum. And it, it, it was a jump scare for me. <laughs> Uh, yes, that was the scores by Don Ellis. Uh, I've made note of that because it's coming in hot. It's like the score for, um, uh, Taking a Pelham 123. It's another one of these, like, great 70s, brassy, kind of real propulsive scores. But Don Ellis also did the soundtrack for a movie called Natural Enemies, uh, which features Hal Holbrook walking around all day talking Oh, that's getting a that's getting a Blu-ray. Yes, yes. Uh, talking about sounds... how he wants to murder his family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Wait a minute. Pure Cinema's talked about that and it yes. sounds like the bleakest movie ever. Yeah, we watched it in a marathon recently. He was the composer for French Connection 2. Mm-hmm. I I had no idea this movie had a sequel. Okay, so I was going to get to that at some point. It is awesome. Is it? Mm-hmm. Totally worth watching. Is John Frankenheimer directed it, and he directed... He's got a lot of good stuff. Something I've seen. I mean, a lot I've seen. You should watch The Train. I've never heard of that one. There's like... Four train derailments in it. It's crazy. 
uh, Frankenheimer directed Ronin, the movie that I keep trying to talk about. That is a very good tie-in with this movie that we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's... I thought I had seen more stuff from him, but it looks like the only thing I've seen from him is Ronan. Oh, oh, <laughs> he replaced Richard Stanley in the Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. I remember. Did you see that documentary, the Moreau documentary? Yeah. The, uh, so Central Cinema, before I joined on, they did a double feature of the documentary and uh, um. Island of Dr. Moreau, the, uh, the Richard Stanley, Dr. Moreau. That was, uh, I can't remember if I saw them both in the same night or saw them on consecutive nights. I feel like I did it consecutively. Even with the context, that movie is not good. <laughs> no, I remember I was in college and I, I smoked a little bit of pot here or there, but not a whole lot. And then I went over to a friend's house and they took, we made a gravity bong, took like a gallon size uh, water bottle, filled up the sink, cut the bottom out, loaded weed in it, and so I pushed <laughs> down and it just launches. I, I could like barely even inhale, and this thing, when you push your head down on a gravity bong, it just like forces all the smoke like deep into your lungs, and so I just cough and cough and cough and like... It's that like gross coughing where it's almost starting to become gagging. And then after that, I was high as a fucking kite and we watched The Island of Dr. Moreau with Val Kilmer. And it was one of the weirder experiences of my life. <laughs> Certainly seems like it would be. Also, thank you for uh, demystifying gravity bongs for me. <laughs> what do you mean? I I'd heard of the term before, but I've never been in the presence of a gravity bong. Uh, so. Oh, they work great. It's like a shotgun blast because you can basically, you can get such a dense pull on the bowl using just the suction of the water as you lift up the bottle that oh, you can basically yeah. get way more smoke. Yeah, you lift the bottle with the flame over the bowl, and so that suction pulls it. And so it's basically a lung full of smoke over your sink, and then you unscrew the top, and then just push your head down towards <laughs> the water, and it all goes in, and even if you don't want it to, it, it, it <laughs> there's nowhere there. else for it to go, so it's going in, and yeah, they're, they're, they're fun, they're, they're, they're stupid as hell, they're fun though. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Josh, you and I decided to choose this movie as the pairing to Don't Look Now, mm -hmm. and I haven't seen it, but you clearly have, so what's your history with this? <laughs> when did you first see it, and why, why'd you choose this one? So, I, I don't know if I, if I brought this up, um, I first saw this movie on accident, when I was like, 12 years old or something, uh, because I thought it was porn. <laughs> how so i mean the french connection french kissing french connection like it seemed like it might be a 70s porn and my parents had rented it and they were like no it's an adult movie you wouldn't like it and so when they were gone i was like 
I'm totally watching that movie. Uh, and popped it in, and I was captivated. A little disappointed, <laughs> but captivated. <laughs> you you got to see one lady's butt in this movie. Yes. That's about it, though. That's uh, Right from the beginning, it's it's a bunch of guys doing dude stuff and making deals and uh, being cops and robbers and shit, and it just... It, not at all porn. So... And men carrying large panes of glass on a on weird the, frame that's on a backpack that just fascinated me. Yes. I was expecting that guy to fall down or... <laughs> <laughs> um, very distinct hats when most of the movie is uh, um, trying to discreetly follow people. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> So, um, Josh, what do you think of this, the start of this movie, where we get, we get, like, right off the bat, we start with a hitman murder, and, uh, it's a hell of a squib. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a squib. <laughs> I've never seen somebody get shot in the chest, and there's an explosion of blood that hits them in the face violently. It's, it looks like it's, like, right at their collarbone, right? Like, because it's close up there and just it reminded me of the ending of taxi driver when he's just going in and like <laughs> and like going crazy on everybody because the squib and the amount of blood and the uh kind of the anguished sound that the guy <laughs> the guy makes as soon as he's hit uh it's also that would be the most fun shit to shoot that seems like a blast to get to do. They don't really clue you in what's going on. Oh, no. You just, just kind of get the idea that something's fucked up in Marseille. I kind of felt that way about the first hour of this movie. I was just like, I don't quite know what's going on. I get there's deals going down and stuff, uh, but it, it just kind of felt like, foot pursuit to foot pursuit of random people and then eventually the the pieces started to fall together a little bit more in my head and that's uh so probably 20 years ago i read the book which i had seen the movie a couple times by that point and watch or reading the book i was like oh so this is all the details this is everything like all the reasoning behind everything because there's no exposition in this movie, hardly. There, you just catch them, you catch parts of conversations, you see Popeye doing shit, and not really knowing why, uh, and you see them following people, and that's about it. Like, there's so much boots-on-the-ground kind of police work happening in this. So I had, I'd forgotten there even was a book until this rewatch. Yeah. Uh, it, how how does it is it actually worth reading or is it kind of where the movie's better? Oh no, I thought it was uh in kind of that that true crime kind of way. It was really fascinating. But it's it doesn't make me feel icky like a like a murder book does, right? Like a true crime yeah. murder book is kind of gross. Um uh, but this is this was much more interesting and I think worthwhile. So this 
This is a nonfiction or based on a true story movie? Yes. Because, yeah, at the end with the title cards. Oh, yeah. That's, cause the, that's uh, what it implies, but I, I was kind of confused because it didn't feel like a based on a true story movie to me. I, I forgot uh, Popeye and. Was it Ed, Eddie? What's Buddy? Roy, Eddie Egan? Is that Roy? Yeah, or, is that Roy Scheider? Oh, Eddie Egan, yeah. Yeah, they, they were real cops, and yeah, he's, I think they followed him around for research. Yeah, I think Popeye is Eddie in real life, and oh, Buddy, yeah, yeah, that's right. Buddy yeah. was Sonny. William. Wow, this movie won five Oscars. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Friedkin has a good autobiography that kind of goes through each of his movies, and it, it's worth seeking out the audiobook, but it's. You you have to uh, source it online nefariously, unfortunately. Oh man, that's a bummer. I've got the the book sitting over there on my shelf, um, in the red section, next to the sympathizer, which I also had for book club and didn't read. <laughs> <laughs> so, our next scene in this movie is. Uh, we're introduced to some very adorable little kids talking to Santa Claus, played by Gene Hackman outside, and Roy Scheider, who goes inside, and they go to arrest this guy. And we get our first of many foot pursuits after he seemingly slashes Roy Scheider's arm. I'm not quite sure if he actually got him or not. Um, but that kind of sets the tone for this movie, which is just a lot of... I mean, it's just New York City as a character, and we're just going to explore, like, both above ground and underground. We're just going to crawl over this entire city as, in the pursuit of these bad guys. Um, what did you think about Popeye's interrogation technique here, Sean, when he is... He's just constantly trying to throw this dude off balance. Um, I... I I think Popeye's a real piece of shit, <laughs> honestly, is how I feel. Uh, he doesn't, he's not very redeeming, especially with his uh, racist slur towards black people he throws around. Mm -hmm. and he follows it up with never trust anyone, but I don't know, this guy just seems like a greasy sleazeball, similar to William Peterson in To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, for sure. So... Hackman kind of famously hated this movie, even though it got him an Oscar. You know why? I, I think because of that. He he hated the. Uh, I I guess he felt like the movie kind of glorifies the character. I guess is what it boils down to, which I I don't even know if it does, but with him being the like the character in question it's probably a little more personal i mm. guess and he kind of plays a similar character in Tenenbaums who is you know equally grating in some ways and racist um and that movie's similarly i mean that that movie asks more of the audience as far as coming around to love Gene Hackman than this one does i feel like I don't think this movie really glorifies him. I feel like it kind of leaves it up to the audience whether or not you like this guy. Also, uh, going back to 
his other role that we've covered, I'm still disturbed that they keep the peanut butter in the refrigerator in the Royal Tenenbaums. I can't get over <laughs> that. It's one of the things I think about repeatedly with the movie now. I think we kept peanut butter in the fridge when I was a kid. I liked it. I keep maple syrup in the fridge because I like a thicker consistency. What? (laughs) (laughs) This is wild. Peanut peanut butter and maple syrup. They they belong in the the fridge. They belong in the pantry, no matter how old they are. They are indefinitely on the in the pantry shelves. Could be three years old. They're getting used. Mm -hmm. If it's a jar of peanut butter in my house, odds are it's less than two weeks old because (laughs) they don't last long. Uh, Sean, it is my presumption correct that you eat some sort of uh, crunchy, specialized hippie nut butter, or is this like (laughs) Peter Pan, uh, like I? Oh God, no, 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 no. Part of becoming an adult is refining your peanut butter taste. Mm-hmm. And so I get, uh, I think it's, they're owned by, well, I could tell you right now. It's Lisa Scudders, and it's, the ingredients are just peanuts, salt, and that's it. Maybe oil. Is it Lisa Scudder peanut butter? What's, what the hell is this product? <laughs> Lisa Scudder's Laura peanut Scudder? butter? Is that a real Laura thing? Scudder. Laura Scudder's peanut butter, and I think they're owned by some other company. I don't know, but yeah, no, Laura Scudder peanut butter is the way to go, and uh, you gotta get the oil separating peanut butter. You gotta put the work in. You gotta strengthen your forearm. Get your get your dinner knife out. Get it to the very bottom of that jar and start stirring until you can't stir no more. Wow, that's. Uh, I mean, it's. Perhaps not surprising that I go for the the Peter Pan with honey. It is the natural Peter Pan, so it's got less preservatives or what have you. But uh, the sweeter, the better for me. Ugh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I can't even eat the sugar peanut butter anymore. If I want a sweet peanut butter, I might add some honey to it. Yeah, the the, the we've fine, talked before about the fine folks at Peter Pan already do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're also putting in hydrogenated things yeah, yeah. and weird oils, and it's just you don't need it. You don't need it. Uh, I don't know if Laura Scudder is owned by somebody or not. I thought it might be like a Smucker's product. I agree with the sentiment, Sean, but then I see... It the- is a Smuckers. <laughs> Laura Scudder is owned by Smuckers. I found it. I got to the bottom of it. I, I agree with the sentiment, but when I look at the price tag, I got, I, I'm got. i a man of conviction. I, there's no cinnamon in it. <laughs> sentiment. <That's- laughs> what, are you looking for other words for peanut butter? <laughs> uh, you know... This French guy, how cool would it be to go out in the backyard of your villa and do ocean fishing from your garden? Oh, yeah, that was that, that looks awesome. The uh, just to back up a second to the dude who got shot, uh, the guy was carrying raw bread around, and then his murderer grabs it. What does the 
what does the phrase raw bread mean? Not raw dough, because that would be raw dough. Raw bread is it's got no covering. Much like raw dog. (laughs) 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 Vulnerable, unprotected bread. Yes, there we go. No sheath. (laughs) (laughs) Did you did you notice that uh, the shooter cracks it open and takes some for himself? Yes. (laughs) I mean, I probably would too. I mean, it looked it looked fantastic. It's hungry work killing people. Yeah, you know Sean would. Yeah, I, I probably would a little bit. You, you know, you always got to see what other bakers are making. Mm-hmm. So just pull <laughs> off a little piece, see how your baguettes ca- stack up to theirs. Um, you got any notes for the scene where the cops go to the club and hang out with some live music and eventually they start following this guy and his wife? Uh, Just that, have you ever been to a bar like this with a big show going on? Never in my life. This reminds me of things like in, you know, clubs and Scarface and stuff like that, where it's just, there's a show going on, but it's in the middle of a normal bar atmosphere. Mm-hmm. No, I would love to go to something like this. That, that's the kind of thing that just makes me think that we've really ruined America, that you <laughs> can't go see like a, like a lounge act anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh... I mean, they they do have drag shows here in Nashville, uh, which that's about the closest I've ever been was like go to a drag brunch where, but people are also like the drag queens are like out amongst the crowd quite often and they're throwing tips at them. Uh, So it's got a whole, it's got like a very party vibe to it. I wanted to call out Rory Scheider because he doesn't, he gets less to do, I feel like, as the movie goes on. So in these. The movie kind of forgets yes. Roy Scheider's in it for a while. Uh, but, and we were just talking about our highest rated actors on Letterboxd, and I'm surprised that he's not one of mine because he's in this, he's in Jaws, All That Jazz, uh, Sorcerer, Marathon Man, and Clute, like all in the 70s. That's that's a great run. You'll be proud of me. I've seen all of those except Clute. Clute's one that I could have picked for this show. That's another. That's another cool genre. Mm-hmm. What is Clute? Because I only know of Clute. It's the name of a drum and bass artist. It's Donald Sutherland for one. Um, it's like a paranoid thriller. Is that is that Alan? Pacula? Um, yes, Alan Pacula. So the uh, All the President's Men, Clute, and Parallax View? Is, mm-hmm. that, is that his paranoid trilogy? Yep. Yeah, all those are really good. It's like a... Clute's like a... Uh... Kind of a murder thriller sort of thing. It's very conspiracy based, and there's a lot of like, uh, is you know that the main character is not going crazy, but even he doesn't know for a lot of it, probably. And everybody else 
thinks, like, there's no conspiracy. My dogs won't leave me alone right now, I'm sorry. They just love you too much. I feel bad for you. They almost love me as much as the weird food this rich French guy picks up. What the hell does he pick up off the dock? Is that an, an oyster? He, he sees something in a little tiny shallow pool and he picks it up and as he's meeting with his hitman, he just starts Cutting cracking it up. open this and eating this thing and I had no idea what it was. Just some kind of ocean trash. <laughs> was it a... Uh, that's not a, an urchin, is it? It looked like one. Okay. But is this guy such a villain that he eats sea urchins? Is it villainous to eat sea urchins? Yes. Wh- okay. Well... Because you're like <laughs> eating monsters. It's weird. <laughs> Color me, color me a villain, then, I guess, Sean. I already have. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> I stayed under your roof. I see how things operate in your house. <laughs> Scary dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> me with my cheap peanut butters and, uh, I don't know, three, three of the same guitars. Way, way too many Starbucks cakes lying around that house, man. Hey, that's because they're free, baby. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um so they're going to uh the french guys are going to use some french celebrity as part of the the drug deal i don't know um throwing change at one of those toll booth baskets looked really fun and i'm kind of upset that i never got to have that experience that's um i guess they don't have that anymore that's weird. Everything is those like little digital things. Or if you don't have those, you just get a bill in the mail like a couple weeks later. Every time I go to see my parents, yeah. I, I cross a toll bridge and they just send me oh, a bill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a whole lot more expensive if you get it in the mail, too. Yes. So what do you think of the bar shakeup? What the hell is going on with this bar? Is this bar... A pharmacy? What's going on? <laughs> so I, I love this scene. It it's so this is probably like the first real taste of like, well, this dude sucks. Uh uh Popeye being the guy that sucks. Um but he shakes everybody down and makes that nasty cocktail just with all the junk in it. Uh, some and, of the shittiest looking weed I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's all a front to talk to his contact, who he takes into the bathroom, and then I I forget what's he what what does he get out of him like a possible deal going down is that is that what it is? Yes, I think he says something about the port. Like there's something coming into the port. Yeah, and Popeye's such an asshole that his CI asks him to punch him in the side of the face and looks like Hackman punches him straight in the mouth. <laughs> I I love the the timing of that where he's uh he uh he he asks him which side is he wanted on and then it looks like he points to his right side and I think he just hits him from the left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
and then throws him out into the bar and then they they leave when Popeye and Buddy are uh, they spend like the whole day tailing that guy I don't remember if it's before or after the bar shake up shake down uh, but there's uh, the guy owns this business and they talk about how it only brings in like $7,000 a year or something so why is he driving around all these fancy cars? The sign out front says uh, candy newspapers. And it legitimately took me 15 seconds to realize those are two different things. <laughs> <laughs> What's a cigarette drink? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what Popeye makes in the bar. Ugh. Uh. Yeah, so uh, Popeye going in to talk to Sal and Angela, I think are the names of the store owners. Yeah, yeah. Telling her that he's looking to buy some lingerie and how much would it cost for her to model for him. It's just, just being gross. This guy's just gross. And when he wakes up, you know, he looks when he's handcuffed by his ankle to the bed. So and that, he just looks greasy and chubby and hungover. That scene just, is so stressful where he, he has uh, Roy Scheider credit cards his way in the door and there's a bicycle blocking the door and it's a tiny, <laughs> nasty apartment. And also the hallway looks like, it's like a... It's like the hallway in a high school where you're, it's like you don't want to be. That's what his whole apartment <laughs> hallway looks like. <laughs> just, just like the shittiest part of your high school. <laughs> and Josh, then, did you get, oh, sorry, go ahead, Perk. That, that was pretty much it. I was, sorry, I was going to say, Josh, did you get Gerard Butler, Den of Thieves vibes from this scene here? Oh, just in general, like the, he seems like um, uh, Jerry Butts could be his his progeny, or at least <laughs> yeah. they could have been mentor and student at some point in time. Like that scene later when he's eating a slice of pizza, wearing cotton or wool gloves. Yeah, just the idea <laughs> of being such such an animal that you eat a slice of pizza wearing gloves really disturbed me. <laughs> The I love that scene though because uh he's out there drinking shitty coffee, eating pizza by the slice, uh that someone else has to bring to him as he's tailing these uh, uh you know, French drug smugglers who are inside like this fine dining establishment having this fantastic looking meal. <laughs> he's also just standing directly in front of the window. <laughs> yes. Uh <laughs> I wondered how they did some of the, how they called action on some of these shots though, because he's framed in the background. I guess it's not background because it's like a deep focus shot, but uh, there are several times where characters are like across the street from each other when they're tailing people uh, or later when he, uh, after the big chase, uh, when he shoots that guy at the top of the stairs and then he's framed at the bottom, like almost perfectly behind him. There's stuff like that that is so cool, and I'm like, with this kind of run-and-gun-looking production, how did you do those shots? It's so good. Yeah, that one shot where he's 
in the background eating the pizza and drinking the coffee, and the camera zooms through the window to watch him as he dumps out his coffee and then comes back to the conversation at the table. It's just real touch of class, and just, you know, such a little small moment in this movie, but Friedkin kind of showing off right there. Uh, these guys, right before this whole thing with the pizza and all that, as they're doing the wiretap, they remind me of, like, children. How it looks like they're drinking beer, smoking cigarettes, giggling as they listen to the woman talk to the guy who she says she wants pizza, and where is he going to get a pizza at this hour? And and then later on when they hear what sounds like the details for the drug deal, they like celebrate, like jump up and down and go like, woohoo, and like drink beers, and it just, these are just rowdy, unprofessional party boys who happen to have a badge. Yeah, they're, they're the original loose cannons. Did you watch Bojack, Josh? I don't recall if you did. Um, I <laughs> I watched the was it the first couple seasons? Um, yeah, I I binged them while I was living at Eli's right after I got separated from my ex. Uh. Oh, so you watched a very depressing <laughs> show at a very happy time in your life. Yes, it was it was perfectly framed within my life to to watch that show and just feel like everything was shitty. And I have not revisited it or finished watching it because it is so tied to that point in time that I don't know that I can uh, do it. I'm sure I can. I'm very, very sound these days. There's a very funny episode where in the police station they have on the whiteboard they're trying to work out if a cop is a loose cannon or if a cop plays by his own rules <laughs> or if a cop has like doesn't has no need for a badge and they just go through like every single stereotypical trope to try to figure out which one of them best fits this cop that works with them um my next note is Oh, yeah, Scheider and, you know, they lose the guy on the bridge in the traffic jam, and then they end up following him on foot, and this is where uh, Popeye runs into the the main bad French guy. They bump into each other in the lobby, mm -hmm. which was a funny little moment for these two guys to r literally run into each other. What'd you think of the little scientist lab tech guy? I loved this scene with the purity test. I th any oh, kind of shit like this is I right think up my that alley. guy was real oh yeah I, if I recall I believe that was like a real drug guy that shows how much I know that I called him a drug guy but. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I, was I, I, I think so it, why it may be real heroin too the movie shows us two different methods of testing purity which confused me we have this first one with the, the the alcohol lamp that burns up a gauge and somehow this gauge tells you purity and then the other one it looks like it's just a reagent that he drips on it and it turns red i like him giving you like the different range of quality as the temperature goes up mm-hmm and they're yeah, all, they're was... all seemingly the same. <laughs> There's not much distinguishing. I think I that... enjoyed 
I enjoyed his descriptions of the scale of drugs as it keeps getting better and better and higher quality. I think somewhere in the middle is like government grade and the or government government uh is that what he said? Government something, but it, the the top was dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> Which dynamite was above blast you into orbit. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, blast off is like the beginning one. <laughs> Which like really? <laughs> Good, so now good housekeeping Hackman seal of approval. That's that's <laughs> one of them. <laughs> so Hackman and the lead French guy now have a very fun game where they get on and off the subway about eight times. Yeah, I, I love this whole sequence. It's just like like no no actual good cop would think this is like a good way to follow somebody. <laughs> But uh, super fun to watch. This whole scene where just kind of tailing them. Uh, well, the this is the kind of stuff that I I love about these movies. The uh, kind of proceduralness that it's like not necessarily exciting, but you're just watching somebody work, and it ends up uh, it doesn't work out this time. But it it's super funny when he eventually thwarts him and just waves to him as he as the train goes by i love when hackman tries to keep the ruse going by picking up the payphone and faking one of the worst fake phone calls i've heard where he's like ah i i can't come into my bar at the ship (laughs) today yeah you see (laughs) and the grape drink and the orange drink shooting in those plastic domes that fascinated me like and then (laughs) He buys a candied apple? What was going on in the New York subway in the 70s? You're yeah, selling grape drink and candied apples? Yeah, there's like a whole carnival going on, going on down there. <laughs> Those drinks looked grody. Just like pure sugar, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. It's way too purple and way too orange. Um, so the French guy loses him by throwing something in the trash and gets back on, and Hackman's just terrible at pursuing him here. What do you think of 70s air travel? Because this was one of the most fascinating parts of the movie to me. Just the whole process of buying a ticket, and then the plane layout itself. The plane having seemingly just an open lounge that you could go hang out in in the back? Wasn't this ticket like 50 bucks? Yeah, it's super cheap. And it's just, write your, and she says, write your own name on your ticket. (laughs) (laughs) TSA is non-existent. It's so quaint. Yeah. And being able to just buy a ticket and then just get on the plane. Like, I'm just walking up to the counter and I'm just going to go wherever I want to. That's. I'm I'm not confident I could buy a ticket for this week. Right. I'm. I'm. I'm traveling at the end of next month and I'm paranoid that I'm, that something is going to get fucked up because I won't hit the right window of being able to buy, buy my tickets. So Austin, I got real lucky with my recent trip where I had very few delays and no cancellations. You didn't have that experience recently, did you? (laughs) No, I did not. I was coming back from Milwaukee and landed in Charlotte to find that my flight to Knoxville was just 
outright canceled with not many options. Uh, I, I I talked to the help desk and they were as helpful as you would think. And the best they could do for me was to schedule me 24 hours later. (laughs) And so, so I went to the rental car area just to try my luck. I was not hopeful because there was a lot of people in my same situation. And somehow uh, they were all sold out, but there's two other guys in the same dealing with the same thing, trying to get to Knoxville. And one of them happened to have a car and offered it to the other two of us. So end up, ended up riding with two strangers back to Knoxville, like a four hour ride and lived. You lived planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> yeah. And they were they, they might've been crazy. I don't know, but they did not show it on the trip. It was fine. I got home. It was very late at night and I was tired and I had to wake up at five o'clock the next day, but, uh, made it home. How was that ride? Four hours with two strangers. Uh, it wasn't that front or were you in the front or the back? I was in the back and I think, I think me taking the back was the, the guy in the, in the passenger seat was older and I think he. I, I don't really care, but I, th- I think front seat was like the better option for him. Mm-hmm. To me, the back seat was the better option because I was less engaged in conversation and could just kind of be back there by myself. So it really wasn't that bad. Did you consider pulling your badge out of your pocket and just running into the street and commandeering a car and saying, this is an emergency, I got to get to Knoxville? <laughs> Um, before that happens, though, we got the sniper scene. Yes. The sniper, of all the times for him to pull the trigger, he has so much time to shoot Gene Hackman, but he waits until a woman pushing a stroller crosses directly in front of him, and that's when he pulls the trigger. (laughs) Why? Why? This movie, like, why kill a mother right there? Why did it have to be a mother pushing a baby? Like, that's just crazy. That's the world we live in, man. It's a dirty, filthy place. And then uh, I, I get his sentiment that another, not cinnamon. <laughs> but somebody comes, somebody like immediately comes up to the woman who's been shot and he's like, get away from her. Don't touch her. Get away from her. <laughs> It's just very, he's, he's, very funny how aggressive he he's is. He's like, leave her, she's already dead. <laughs> That's uh, the one of the other cops, who seemingly a, a better cop, uh, makes fun of Popeye for his, his ankle holster for his gun. He's like, oh, it's some kind of trick, uh, some kind of fast draw trick or something that you do. Uh, Does he say gimmick? Yes, and he, he also says, "Or is it for rubbing up against women so they don't know you're a cop?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but seemingly, like when he starts getting shot at here, and he pulls that gun out, uh, it's it's not very fast. <laughs> it doesn't seem very convenient at all for your main <laughs> how, weapon. How could it be a quick draw if it's around your ankle? Right. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> if you're, it, it could be quick if you're roundhouse kicking somebody, or if you're in a recumbent bicycle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I want to recut of this movie with all the foot chase scenes with Popeye <laughs> and a recumbent bike. <laughs> with a little orange flag on the back uh-huh. on a pole. <laughs> Wouldn't it be that much more noticeable than he already is? So yeah, Popeye runs up to the roof, tries to find the sniper, sniper's taken off, and now we get the scene of scenes, I'd say, what really, what this movie's really notorious for here, which is this this subway slash car pursuit. What'd you all think of this? Oh, this scene I mean, is wild. Like, uh, Austin, do you do you have any information on the the BTS of this one? So the book goes into detail. They had been shooting. They'd been shooting the chase, and Friedkin was not happy with it. Because I guess guess they had, it had been like a very choreographed sequence they were doing. And he, per his side of the story, basically like berated the, uh, the stunt choreographer or the driver or whoever. And, um, and I, I think the driver said something to the extent of like, "All right, come back tomorrow, and we'll we'll do this, just you and me." And then essentially got what the movie is, which is that like crazy gorilla style car chase that is very unsafe and <laughs> harrowing. Where um, was the cameraman? It's just in the car. I think I think it was Friedkin. Did they remove the windshield? For it, how because those shots where it's like a POV from the car's hood, I was really curious how they shot that. Because I know later on in the Frankenheimer movie Ronan, they took the boot off the front of cars and would have the cameraman literally like sitting in the front trunk of cars as they were zipping through the streets. And that's that's what this looked like to me. Yeah, it's been a little bit since I've listened to the book, but. Also, was Hackman doing some of the driving here? I, I, it didn't seem like there was a way for them to fake it. I, I think I think they shot interstitials, like or yeah. Or I mean, I, no. Anytime, whatever. just when it's from like the cockpit point of view, it looks like he's legitimately driving. But yeah, he. Uh, I think he definitely drove, but presumably whatever he was driving was more safe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say safe, but I, I don't know the if you look at the um, the reflections, uh, it looks like they're going pretty fast underneath the the elevated train. Like it is because uh, you can see in the windshield, like the sky, and then the the things flying past the the railroad ties flying past in the reflection as he's driving, and that's just. Once again, harrowing is the only word that I have for it. (laughs) Even if that was like closed off streets for that stuff, that's still wild to me. There's an episode of Sunny in Philadelphia where they think this guy is their 
their evil stepfather or something. I don't recall specifics, but they keep shooting photographs of his car. And then at one point, somebody rear ends his car and the guy's in his apartment and hears it and starts yelling. And repeatedly throughout the episode, they keep smashing this guy's car and it ends in the very end with it just being blown up. And that's what I kept thinking about here was the poor owner of this car, because by the time this chase is done, this car is fucking trashed. And I love the continuity of the car being trashed. You could tell that they used that same car beat to shit, you know, sequentially through this chase in a way that a movie like uh, comes to my like Jackie Chan's Who Am I? You can clearly see when they would swap out for a new car and you would lose the continuity of that damage. And it's like when an actor loses their makeup wounds in between scenes. It's like cars also carry those wounds, and you want them to carry through. I don't think you've ever heard of a car being described as wounded, and I I love that. This one definitely is. (laughs) This car fucked up, man. But this is awesome, and these, these collisions and him slamming up against the wall it's great because they're not too Hollywoodized. It's just, it's just intense fender benders and, you know, zipping in and out of traffic in between these beams. It's a very stunning scene. Where do you put this on the list of car chases? You got your bullets, you got your Ronins. Uh, what, what other ones come to mind for you? It's uh, got to be up there. Like, I saw Bullet not that long ago. Bullets is Bullets another cool movie. I feel like it's a little more. It kind of holds back a little bit. I feel like. Oh, uh, Sean, just to answer your question, they made a front bumper mount for that the POV of the road stuff. Oh, cool. Yes. I, I, it looks so cool. It looked like video game point of view. Yes. Uh, there are stunt drivers. Good lord. This, that, it's just insane. <laughs> I love it so much. And the cross-cutting between that and the tension that's happening on the train itself as the hitman moves from the back of the train to the front and kills a cop. And then kills some other idiot. This guy, the the guy who approaches him afterward, he's like, come on now. Just give me the gun. Put it down. Like, dude, what are you doing? You all have this hitman cornered and he's pointing a gun at you. Leave. (laughs) Go away. Doesn't he say, like, I'm a Marine or something? Probably. Yeah. He's a precursor to 1517 to Paris or whatever that Eastwood movie is. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, neither have I. I kind of bailed on Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I, wait, did did I already ask? I did. I asked for your letterbox list of people you're over, you're done with. <laughs> I, I can't be over Clint Eastwood. I'm sorry. Uh, this is... Uh, just, uh, Grand, Grand Torino was marking the well, beginning of the end for me. I say that I I don't know that I've seen one of his modern movies, but I, yeah, I can't. You haven't seen The Mule? I did not. Oh, I it's bad. I, I mean, can't, it's it's fine, but it's bad. I can't quit his uh, older repertoire. Uh, no, I'm fine with that stuff. I'm just I'm just 
I mean, he's like a 98-year-old man. I don't know how many more movies he's going to direct, but I'm I'm done with those. Oh, so I, I've got a... <laughs> uh, what, what movie was it? Oh, it was Cry Macho. Mm-hmm. So I, I was working a shift at the theater once, and the, these two old guys came in, probably 60, 70 age range. And, well, they were seeing something kind of weird. I can't remember. Anyway, they uh, they came in and um, were like, uh, <laughs> we just saw Cry Macho at the theater. <laughs> It was pretty good, but that Clint Eastwood, he's decrepit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It cracked me up. Oh, poor Clint. That was a delightful accent. (laughs) And it it was great uh, because one of them kept calling me young man. That's got to feel good. Yeah, that's a good feeling. Uh. Now would be the perfect time to recommend that you pick up the Clint Eastwood Reader uh, on Kindle or paperback from Amazon, written by Andrew Ford, former guest. Oh, I think I remember you talking about that. Yeah, he did. Uh, I guess he, he went through every Clint Eastwood movie and talked about him in the book. And I think he's working on a Spielberg one now. I just rewatched uh, Magnum Force recently for the mm-hmm. Action Boys podcast. Uh, I love that movie. It's kind of stupid. Uh, the story is kind of not all there, but great movie. So after the trains, uh, do the trains collide here? That's what's implied. Yes. With the okay, uh, yeah that that effect could have been a little better. But I don't know how you could have done that uh, in reality. But after this, this is where um, Popeye catches the hitman and just shoots him in the back before he can run away. And stuntmen are just crazy because this fall down these stairs, he goes like head first down and then does a complete he- head over heels rotation flip. It just... And this is just like a casual day for them of falling down a flight of 15 stairs where it's so easy to like fuck yourself up. Uh, 15 concrete or metal looking stairs onto nothing. Like there's no pad. There's no padding there. We can see the whole shot. You see that guy roll down the stairs, ass over tea kettle and like smack his head into the railing. And it's like, (laughs) that that was the phrase I was looking for. (laughs) Oh, yeah, all, um, all that work to just shoot the guy too, and <laughs> well, Popeye doesn't seem like the type to ask questions first and then start shooting. No, no, he very much is not. <laughs> <laughs> so from this point, my next meeting, my next note is when the cops bust that meeting and confiscate that car. Oh, uh, this is my. This is my favorite part of the movie. I was I was about this to was, say this I, was my jam. This was like the Better Call Saul montage. I love just dismantling this car piece by piece. I think this and is my I love favorite that too. Irv, for some reason, Irv's like, "What? The only thing I didn't take out was the rocker panels." And it's like, 
<laughs> I, I love the the cut on that is great or he he says that and then Popeye is like Irv, what the hell is that? <laughs> and the way they're uh at some point the two guys show up at the at the garage and uh, I just love the bullshit they're feeding them. It's like, oh we got four hundred cars coming every night. It's gonna take a while. <laughs> so Scheider realized that the car's 120 pounds overweight. Seems like they could have caught that earlier. Yes. A gallon of gasoline weighs approximately 6 pounds. So that 120 pounds could be accounted for just with a full tank versus an empty tank. Uh, Just a fun little math thing there. It's also where you see the drugs are at. They would have, I mean... You'd think they would have run into it sooner because 120 pounds is a lot. It's a lot of drugs, yeah. And you don't really see all that much that they pull out. That's, I Uh, think, um, if I'm not mistaken, in the book, though, it's actually more uh, that they catch in the car. Which is even crazier to me. Like, how do you hide even 120? I know it doesn't look like 120 pounds in, in those little panels there. No, but maybe there's a bunch of bags under, under them. I don't know. That's, oh, uh, a record-setting seizure was made of 246 pounds concealed in a Citroen DS. Uh, it, it, in total, they had brought over 1,600 pounds of heroin in this car, just shipping it back and forth. Dang. That's more than 120. Oh, yeah. So the French guys show up to pick up their car from the impound, and I thought Scheider was really great in the scene as he's kind of fucking with these guys a little bit, being like, oh, first time to New York? Yeah, things are a little hairy out there. You still gotta pay the tow fee regardless of what's going on, and just he's kinda giving these guys the runaround here. Also, how'd they put that car back together? Yeah, they they <laughs> definitely took blades to part of it, and were just cutting shit open. Yeah. Um. So they take the car to the drug mate and this is where we get the same science guy. He does a different test with the the reagent that turns red. And so the cops, I thought the cops would have, I thought either they were going to show up and there would be no drugs in the car, or then I thought the cops might have swapped out the real drugs for fake stuff. Yes. But I guess that wouldn't really serve any purpose for them in this instance. So it, they just left the drugs in there to catch everyone. The, uh, I love that the smugglers, once the cops, once they see the cops on the bridge, like there's only one place for them to go, which is back into the industrial area where they were. Like, where do they think they're going when they run? Are they just planning to do a shootout? Is that like their only option? It, at a certain point, uh, and I've thought of this, uh, I was watching a, a movie called Raw Deal, not the Schwarzenegger one, but a uh, film noir, and there's multiple scenes of this guy getting cornered 
and then he's going to shoot it out with the cops. And it's like, I don't know, man. If it's between death and going back to prison, I'd, I'd probably go back to prison. I don't want to die. <laughs> I really don't want to die. Whether I'm in a lake or a large body of water or whatever, I, I just don't want to do it. It doesn't seem fun to me. I'm like Hob Gadling over here. I, uh, I think it's a, bunk, um, a mugs game. The shot of the of the car cresting the hill of the bridge, and then you you slowly see the cops like sitting down at the bottom. Mm-hmm. That may be one of my favorite shots in all of movies. Yeah, it's very cool. In that all reveal. Of movies. Wow. Yeah, I, I just I love that. Uh, I love that pan up, and you, you just see Popeye sitting there with his. Shit-eating grin. <laughs> and his dumb little hat. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the big shootout here at the end of this? Man, it is... Uh, it's so chaotic, for one thing. Because they don't know where the guys have gone. And Friedkin does this thing where he's like crossing the lines uh, uh, of action. So it seems like even though the cops have all shown up and they're, but they're kind of pointing in every direction and the, the smugglers are in all of the buildings. So you don't know where, um, what's his name? Charnier, Charnier is the, the frog one. Yeah. Frog one. Um, and you know, he's just run off into the distance, but all these guys, it just looks like it's going to be a bloodbath is what happens. I love that the so the guy who's organizing this deal is it Sal? Is it is this like his first big deal? Is that what the thing is? The the guy on the American side. Yeah the the guy who runs the the restaurant. Yes, that's Sal. Yeah, so this is like his first kind of big break. Yeah, I guess. And I, I love that he just gets shot almost immediately, just like. Real young guy, probably, probably the least of the worst, I guess. Mm-hmm. Probably yeah. a whole, probably dudes much worse than him involved in this. And it just brutally gunned down. But as he follows uh, Frog One, this stuff reminds me a lot of The Exorcist, where that real creepy building. Or I don't even know if it reminds me of The Exorcist. It just reminds me of that he's a freaking a director that can shoot scary shit. That he shoots the hell out of this abandoned warehouse, and it's on uh, it's super wide lenses. It feels like it's moving around, and there's a slight handheld quality to it. Um, and it's like is it like natural light? Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, given the size of this production, I guess they could have had. But, man, at this point in time, I always think that they're shooting with natural light for these big, big wide shots in the early 70s. Like, the technology for it just seems like that's what you would have had to do. Did freaking drink beer on set a lot? You said he was shooting with natural light. <laughs> ah. Thank yeah, you that, for the laugh. That, uh, <laughs> That's a bad joke. 
<laughs> that warehouse. So I, I like how you lose track of the guys here, and we lose track of our characters, and we end up, you know, with Popeye shooting. Is it was it a Fed or is it a cop? It's Some other either way cop, I guess. Yeah. Either way, Popeye kills one of his allies, and he Seemingly, seems to not give a shit yeah, at d- all. Does not care. <laughs> Roy Scheider is like. You killed a man. I think, and then I think he just says he's out here somewhere. Yeah, no, he doesn't care at all. He just moves on. And this takes us to the ending of this movie, which I found this ending to be very abrupt, which is Hackman says he's around here somewhere and he goes around the corner and we just hear one single gunshot and a cut to black. And then the movie finishes with our... Uh, our character title cards where we get little blurbs about each person's future which are and like, who went to jail and who survived and <clears throat> we find out that the main bad french guy got away scot-free and i thought popeye had been killed but no popeye and his partner both just got transferred off the narco- the narcotics it just felt oddly i i don't know i i thought for sure popeye was dead and it didn't say he got shot or anything. And then they just both got transferred off of the narcotics division. Oh, okay. I don't know. This felt just like a real weird ending to me. I don't know if you guys felt the same way about it. I think it... I think it's trying to play into the futility of trying to, I guess, I don't know, fight crime like, or... Uh, yeah, I guess so. Just the futility of trying to fight the the human nature of this. Um, but it, it it and the the extra kind of um, hurt of it is like all the criminals get like reduced sentences. The main dude just disappears. Um. Yeah, it seemingly is a total failure and for all the work that they've done and it definitely that downbeat 70s trademark ending. And at least at least two cops are killed, I believe that we see with the one being killed by Popeye and then another guy right at the start of the big shootout, mm-hmm. he gets gunned down. So that's yeah, my thought was, this is, uh, it's all for nothing. It's very David Finchery, though. Like, Popeye is a man. He's another obsessed piece of shit. Like, his obsession. That's a, the- that's a theme of our show. Yes. It started with eight and a half and pie, and I feel like we've never really let go <laughs> of that theme since then. Um, I mean, the dude in, uh, oh... Brother, where art thou? <laughs> that that was very fast, Sean. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Stalker, another man obsessed. He's not so much a piece of shit, but he is a man obsessed by his goals. Uh, yeah, and it ends in a similar kind of warehouse. But I think that quick ending really is like there is no ending of this for uh, Popeye. Like, there's always going to be another smuggler. There's always going to be another bad guy. Um, 
I think it is very similar to the ending of To Live and Die in L.A., where even if he did get killed, there's another shitty cop to step up and take his place and just keep being being that character. So To Live and Die in L.A. is probably one of my... I, I think I actually prefer that. It's maybe the... Uh, like enter more entertaining movie at the expense of like craft maybe, but uh, I, I I love that movie so much. So to wrap this one up here, you guys have any final thoughts? So I I highly recommend watching the sequel to anybody listening. And it, uh, have you seen it, Josh? I have, but I've only seen it once, um, and that was like 20 years ago. Uh, I got, I think there were, I don't know if it was an official uh, double DVD set of them. Um, I seem to remember there was a slipcase. Uh, but yeah, that was the only time I watched it, but I liked it. It's I, I would recommend giving it another watch, because it is... I I need to rewatch it. Actually, I I've only seen it one time in the past five years, I guess. But it, it's pretty wild. Um, it's it's got a uh, another pretty crazy Hackman performance. Oh yes, and I suddenly, as you're saying it, I remember because he goes overseas. Yeah. Yep. I, oh, I, we finally go to France, do we? I don't even want to really talk about what happens yes. because it's a truly like a true left turn yep. for this story. Interesting. So uh I don't I think I kind of wrapped it up with my futility talk there. Uh, Austin, what do you what do you rank this one? Where do you rate this one rather? So I I know I have this one as five stars on Letterboxd. Um, I'm a sucker for police procedurals. Um, And this one helps because Popeye, he's a total piece of shit, but he's very interesting to watch. Um, And Roy Scheider, of course, is just awesome just he's he's one of the best actors to just look at he's got a great face i feel like roy scheider is a great listener there's something about him responding to other people that i think is really fascinating yeah he he adds he adds a lot to a scene just by kind of standing there almost um but I mean the the car chase it one of the best of all time and there's it there's a lot of it there's a lot of it that you wouldn't necessarily say is exciting um but I feel like a lot of those movies are the kind that I like um you get you almost kind of go down to their level and like the the highs become higher because of uh just kind of how not necessarily slow the rest of the movie is but it, it's not trying to 
there there's not like explosions just trying to wow you every five minutes or whatever um but yeah it, it it's one of my it's got to be one of my favorite movies of all time i'd say yeah um i'm right there with you it's a five-star movie for me i think i give it five stars and a heart um yeah i've got a heart on there yeah because it's it is just excellent it's uh probably one of the few times that i'm fully in support of the academy (laughs) i i don't watch many oscar movies not on i don't avoid them but it's not like i try to watch all of them every year or anything but uh this is one that i think definitely uh they got right with the the amount of awards that i got I would give this one a also a three and a half. I it's iconic. I'm glad I watched it and I enjoyed a lot of it. However, that first hour it, it, it everything just kind of felt not inconsequential but just kind of plotless. And I, I know there is a plot, but I wasn't really picking up on it. And to compare this movie with something like Drug War, which we watched more recently, mm-hmm. where it just the 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 chess pieces and the players are more identified, and and then just overall, th- that movie also has more action scenes spliced in the middle of it to keep someone like me who wasn't raised on slow movies <laughs> excited and entertained. So I I liked this one. I didn't love it, and. Yeah, three and a half. Uh, I would, in a similar way that, like, Sorcerer is not very plot-heavy, but I totally understand at all points of Sorcerer, like, kind of what's going on, Mm -hmm. who these four guys are, and what they're trying to escape from. And it's it's easier for me to wrap my head around that one. So I would would rather watch Sorcerer than this. Uh, Josh and Austin, do you guys have anything that you would like to plug? Movies, books, TV shows, anything like that. Uh, if you're around Knoxville, come to Central Cinema, and uh, we'll be making some announcements about the horror Knoxville Horror Film Fest soon. So stay tuned for that, and come out in October. I believe it's October twenty first through the twenty fourth. I think that's what the dates are. We'll have two dates at the Maryville Drive-In, which is a great time. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's that, about that it. That sounds really fun. Uh, as always, you can listen to my other podcast with Andrew and Eli, uh, Stagecoach Justice, where we discuss far too many Western films per podcast. I thought doing two a show was bad, but try doing three. Three shows gets Why? unwieldy. Why are you doing that? Uh, because they're all like 68 or 74 minute movies. Uh, so that's like 10 minutes short of a regular movie. Okay. This was, that was my thinking too. Eli keeps <laughs> saying like, they're not that bad. They're only an hour 20. And I'm like, that's a, that's almost a regular movie. Yeah, that's a full movie. <laughs> Streaming has changed the landscape of movie runtimes. Yes, for sure. Uh, also, I've been watching uh, Sandman on Netflix. 
Oh, I, I want to watch that. Yeah. I'm uh, unsurprisingly, I'm all in on it. Um, my first tattoo was a Sandman comic book related tattoo that I got like 24 years ago. Uh, and I don't regret it at all thinking about making it into a sleeve. So, uh, yeah, pick up Sandman. Nice. Uh, I just listened to a book called Sea of Tranquility, written by Emily St. John Mandel, and she also wrote uh, Station Eleven, which I have not read, but it's quick. It's like, I listened to it on Audible, and it was about five hours long, and I really enjoyed it. It was really clever, really well written, and I love how it came together. So, that was my plug. Cool. Austin, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You were our first guest, and I, I appreciate you being the first, uh, the guinea pig. And it, it was really fun to have you back on the show again now that we've kind of found our footing. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Always good time and good excuse to rewatch some really good movies. Excellent. Hell yeah. Josh, why don't you close us out, my friend? All right, from... All of us at Nashville CA, to all of you out there listening, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Stop.